So today, with all my excitement, I'm going to be starting a historical biography series. Do I hear a shout? Now, a lot of you are like a historical, what? Like, I thought you preached the Bible. What's happening to this church? And, and a lot of you are asking, what in the world is Paul thinking? And that is a very reasonable question. And I could list out all the reasons why I want you to meet these six giants of the faith. I could list out all the things that you'll know historically and how it'll help contextualize our church and put it in perspective of what God's done across the ages and blah, 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 blah. But there's really only one reason I want you to listen. It's because all six of these men, when I've spent time with them, when I've read their works, when I've read their prayers, when I've read about their lives, it starts a fire in me. I mean, I read it, and I want what they have. I want to pray like they pray. I want, to, I, want to change, I want to change the world the way they change it, by faith in God alone. I want to live like them. And I'm praying that at some point in this six-week series, that if I just get up here and start a fire, that maybe some of those sparks will fly, and some of you will see what I see. Maybe some of your hearts will be ready, and maybe you'll catch fire too. Alright? Today we're going to start with a man that most of you probably don't know anything about. A man named Athanasius. If you look at the resume of his life, all you can say is it's epic. He ends up meeting five different emperors in his day. He, he helps create what we know as the New Testament canon of scriptures. He writes two of the leading works of theology in all time. He helped start modern, the institution of modern monasticism. Like this man changes the world. If you look over the fourth century, his shadow looms over the entire thing. So today I just want to walk you through little pieces of his story. We don't have time for much. And then I want to look at his story and then I want to stop. And I want to see what God has done through this man and pray that maybe, maybe he'll do something similar in our time. So the story of Athanasius really begins 297 or so. They don't really know when he was born. 297, he was born, but he was born into world. The thing you have to know is that the world he was born into was ready to change. This, the early Roman Empire right here in the 4th century, it was on the verge of monumental changes. So, so when Athanasius was a boy, he was just about 5 years old. He was growing up in Alexandria, Egypt, just across the, the Mediterranean there, something big was brewing. A man named Romanus was coming into the city council meeting, and he had business to do there in the city hall. And he comes up, and, and they say, well, before we do our official government business, let us all offer a sacrifice to this pagan deity. Well, Romanus was a Christian, and he knew that he only worshipped Jesus Christ. So when he sees them getting ready to do this in his town that he loves, he says, no, I I won't have any part in this. Like, I'll have nothing to do with this. I worship Jesus Christ alone. He is my God. You shouldn't do this. Well, they get really, really mad, and, and it just so happens that in that gathering was Emperor Diocletian himself. The people, they, they want to take Romanus and they want to burn him at the stake. Diocletian, he has a different idea. He says, the punishment should, should match the crime. Let's cut his tongue out. And at that point, Diocletian then sends out a, launches a series of edicts that these Christians, we've given them too much freedom. Let's 
purge the empire of Christians. And he's going to start what is known as the great persecution. Tens of thousands of Christians are murdered, maimed, set on fire. At this time, to be a Christian meant that at any moment, all your possessions might be taken. You might be fed to the lions. You, you might be, have your arm chopped off for not offering sacrifices. You might have your eyes plucked out. It, it was terrible. Athanasius was about five years old when this happened. In Alexandria, where he's from, all the church leadership ended up getting martyred for this, ended up dying. A few years passed, though, and something's going to happen at this bridge right here. You can go there today in Rome, the oldest bridge in Rome. At this place, there was a man. Here's his big, giant head, Constantine. You may have heard of him. He comes to this bridge. He has this army all behind him. He's ready for battle. And at this bridge, he has a vision. He looks up to the sky and sees in the sky a cross. And in it, he hears this word or sees it. The stories are different. But it says, by this sign, ye shall win. Ye shall conquer. And he's convinced God has spoken to me. The Christian God is going to give me victory. And he goes into this massive battle. He wins. He becomes the Roman Emperor Constantine. And he's convinced that now the Christian God has given him victory. And in an instant, the world's changed. Christianity went from being persecuted or at best ignored to being the privileged religion of the emperor. I want, you to, I want you to think about this. Up to this point, being a church leader meant that you had a big target on your chest. Meant that to be a church leader up to this point in history meant that there was very great likelihood that at some point in your life, about every 25 years or so, there would be a major persecution in which you would either be hunted down or killed or maimed or burned or have your eyes plucked out or lose everything you had. And now, being a church leader in an instant means wealth, means power, means favor of the emperor. It's a different world. For the first time in the history of the church, the church world and the world of the state, they start, those lines get blurred. What does it mean to be a Christian in the world? We don't know anymore because suddenly the world says they're Christian. And at the same time, you'll see this. For the first time in the history of the church, being a church leader meant honor and glory and power and freedom. The pastors were given a pulpit, a public pulpit to preach the gospel. The churches became the center of the community. The bishops became as important as Roman governors. Do you see? Everything's inverted in, in a moment because Constantine believes that this God that he did not really know prior to that gave him victory. So, which brings us back to Alexandria, Egypt down here. At that time, there was an old bishop named Alexander who was leading. Alexander of Alexandria. Convenient. He, he was leading the church there. And at the time, the church, he was leading this church in the whole region. Egypt was this vast territory. Uh, it was one of the most important seats of authority in the church at the time. There was, there was Antioch and Alexandria, Rome, Constantinople. He was one of the big four. They actually didn't just call him bishop. They called him pope. You may have heard of that title before. That was a title that those major, major bishops got. All of them were called Pope. So Pope Alexander, he said, 
he was a man who had personally lived through the great persecution, had personally suffered, had seen all those others give their lives for it, and he was committed to use this newfound freedom to further the kingdom of God. He immediately took his new power and said, we are going to start a revival of preaching the Bible. And he started gathering young men from all over the area and started teaching them the scriptures, what the scriptures teach. He started raising up young men. In fact, this is how Athanasius comes into this story. This old man saw this teenager, Athanasius, and said, I see something in you. And so he brought him on as a disciple said, I want you beside me. I want you to be my personal assistant through this. I want to teach you the scriptures that you too might go out and preach. So, up to this point, when we talk about what does it mean to be a Christian and what is a truly Christian doctrine, today, when you guys show up, you just immediately, you know that we probably have some type of statement of faith. We just read the Nicene Creed. You can basically know that churches are going to have some formalized statement because there's theology books and there's a lot of history that we've, we've, we've gone through a lot of these battles. There's all kinds of different denominations and, and we know where people fall in these different lines. At that point in history, there were only three major tests of whether something was truly Christian, a truly Christian doctrine. The first and most obvious was this. What did the apostles and prophets say? Like, what's the Bible say about it? The second, and almost as important, was who did you hear this from? Because if you heard this from some Joe Schmo, I don't know if this is true, but if you heard this interpretation from someone who was trained by one of the apostles, that means something. And the third and most important at this point, will you die for this truth? Like literally. Will you die for the fact that the gospel of John is true? Will you die for the gospel that Jesus is fully God and fully man and he died and rose again for your sins? Will you die for it? And so it was really clear. What do we believe? It's what we'll die for. Now at this point though, once, once it becomes politically powerful and there's all this freedom, once Constantine comes in, suddenly that question's removed. So there's a lot more freedom to explore questions. And Athanasius is really concerned that We use this time, this newfound freedom, to clarify what the apostles have always taught, what you should be willing to die for. And he sits down and says, okay, Christians have always said that Jesus is God, and they've always said that the Father is God, but they've also always said that there is only one God. Hmm. So what are we going to do with that? How do we explain that? Because we've always said that, always told that, always believed it. So he's going to craft... Uh, he's going to try and craft a theological statement that explains the triunity of God, the mystery of God. Okay, so he comes to this verse. You may know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, with, believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And he's sitting there, he's teaching this crowd of pastors. He's over all these churches and he's sitting there teaching them, God, Jesus is the only begotten son of God. And here's his actual language here. He explains that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, sharing in the same substance and essence, yet eternally distinct in his personhood. To which everyone was like, what? If you're confused, so was everyone else sitting there like, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, sharing the same substance and essence. What does that even mean? 
And so he goes on, he says, no, here's a, here's a new word, a word you've never heard before. I want you all to learn it. It's homoousia. It, he takes the word homo, which means the same or one. And he takes ousia, being, substance, nature. He says, that's what the Son is. That God the Son is the same being, essence, nature as the Father. And right then, someone in the back raises his hand and says, um, hey, excuse me? Did you just make up a word? I, I, I just have a quick question for you. Um, you just said that the Father is God and the Son is God and you believe in one God. I mean, I might not be that good at math, but something's wrong here. And then he goes on. This guy, his name is Arius. One scholar actually calls him the first ever Christian rock star. This guy is, is a larger-than-life personality. He's this famous preacher, and he says, he starts questioning Alexander. He says, you know, I've read my Bible a few times, and I've never come across that word ever. But let me show you what, what I've come across in my Bible. John three sixteen. he is the Son of God. Like, h- how do you have a son? Well, sons come from somewhere. They have a beginning. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the first born of all creation. He's born. He's the first, but he is born. Then he reads John 1 through 14, Jesus is the word of God. Hear that? No words. Oh, word. Words come from somewhere. Someone has to speak them. And Arius just says, let's all just stop for a minute and think about this. He's the son of God. That's what the Bible says. Why do we have to go any further? Why do we have to use your unbiblical language? I believe in the Bible, not this philosophy of yours. And then he goes out. He's so enraged that Alexander would possibly teach such a thing that he goes out and he starts teaching this jingle. Ain potty adi uk ain. Ain potty adi uk ain. You can ain potty adi uk ain. You don't need to know Greek. It just rhymes. It's a jingle. He says, there was when he was not. There was when he was not. And let me tell you what, that little jingle started spreading everywhere. Everyone loved the jingle. You know why? Because Arius made sense. He was simple. He was clear. He was convincing. He was a better preacher. He preached the Bible. He used biblical words. He was popular, well-liked, supported by the rich. He made people laugh. He had a cool jingle. There's only one, one little problem. Arius was wrong. It's like Alexander came and met with him, sat down with him, and Athanasius sat down with him and said, the church has never, ever, ever believed or taught anything like this. They've always believed that Jesus is fully God, that he's eternal. Stop what you're doing. But Arius was actually indignant that he would dare use that unbiblical language. And he went out and went even further. Alexander called together some local bishops and said, we've got to kick this guy out of the church. But at that point, that jingle had spread to every household all the way up to the palace. Aim, potty, out of you, gain. Aim, potty, out of you, gain. It was too late. He was too popular. So Athanasius, then not even 25 years old yet, he sets down to write a response. And he writes what we know as on the incarnation. This is his his first major work. And now let me just say, um, when I was 25, I'm not sure if I knew how to do my laundry on my own. This man wrote one of the most enduring theological works of all time. And he wasn't 25 years old yet. 
And he does two major things in that. He sits down and he says, the first thing is he demonstrates that if Jesus is not fully God, then Christianity as we know it collapses. He says that if Jesus is not God, then we can't truly know God because God is outside of time and space. He's other than us. Only in Jesus Christ, only if Jesus is fully God can we possibly know him. There's no way we can bridge the gap. Have you ever seen the gap illustration? This is where it comes from. We can never jump to God unless God himself comes to us. If Jesus is not God, then we cannot know that God has forgiven us because God alone can forgive him what we've sinned against him. If Jesus is not God, then we must not worship him because God alone is to be worshipped. If Jesus is not God, then this is a different gospel because God didn't come himself. He himself didn't come to die for our sins, but he sent a created being, a demigod, a something to die for us. It's a different gospel. And then he says, but Jesus is God. You can know him. You can be sure that you're forgiving. You must worship him. He is the one true God. And this is the Christian gospel. As Lucas mentioned earlier, these same heresies, let's just pause here for a minute. These same heresies are still milling about with different names. You will probably not meet an Aryan out in the street, but you will meet a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. And let me tell you, they are probably really good people, probably better than me, much better. They're, they're probably really devout, really religious, but they're also really deceived. They will use the same Bible we use, and they will use the same language we use, but with totally different meaning. And let me tell you, If Jesus is not God, it's a different God. It's a false God. And a false God cannot save you. The second thing he did in this book is he addresses how someone like Arius, and this is something that we need to hear in our modern day, how someone like Arius, a Bible preacher, someone who reads the Bible for a living, could be thoroughly biblical, thoroughly. He could quote the Bible all over the place and completely wrong. You see... He says it's not enough to read the Bible. Arius read the Bible. He had all these verses to support his position. He was a Bible preacher. But it's not enough to read the Bible. We must read the Bible like a Christian. If we interpret the Bible in a way that contradicts what the apostles have clearly handed down to us, then something is wrong. So one of my professors used to say, Bible, Bible, Bible. Everybody's got a Bible. You see, truth is not a thing to be known. Truth is personal. And in this work, he's going to say that if you want to know the truth, then you need to know Jesus. Because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That the truth is something to be experienced and tasted and seen. That the truth is something to be obeyed and followed and known personally. And that if you don't incorporate head knowledge with heart knowledge, if you don't submit to the truth, you can never truly know it. Here's the the big kicker at the end of his work. He says, For the right understanding of the scriptures, there is need of a good life and a pure soul, and for Christian virtue to guide the mind to grasp, so far as human nature can, the truth concerning God's word. One cannot possibly, listen to this, one cannot possibly understand the teachings of the saints unless one has a pure mind and is at least trying to imitate their life. Anyone who wishes to understand the mind of the sacred writers must first cleanse his own life 
and approach the saints by copying their deeds. Do you hear what he just said? You can read the Bible from cover to cover and not have a clue what it really says. At the end of the day, it does not matter how much scripture you go through. It matters how much scripture goes through you. Period. If you read the word of God and never submit to the word of God, you do not know the word of God. If you read the word and never truly meet Jesus Christ and worship him, you do not know the word of God. Athanasius writes this glorious theology book that would shape the next 2,000 years of church history in which he exalts God for who he is. Arius writes a jingle, Ain, potty out of you, gain. Tell me, which do you think was more popular? Arius, that's right. Everybody's like, oh, that's a book. I have to actually open it and think about it. I don't want to read that. Ain, potty out of you, gain. So all over the world, it doesn't matter what they've said. It doesn't matter what's going on in Alexandria. All over the world is now, Ain, potty out of you, gain. That makes sense. That's simple. It's attractive. It's fun. The emperor likes it. And soon, Arius sets the scene so that Arianism spreads all the way to the highest reaches of the kingdom. Now, let me set the scene for you. This is hard to imagine. In our world, we don't care much about religion. We don't. We live in kind of a secular age. So your neighbors might believe something vastly different to you. You wouldn't even think much about it. But at this time, religious life was seen as integrated with everything else. So if you disagreed with what your neighbor thought, you were breaking apart the community. You were against, it was unpatriotic. And so neighbors were actually coming to blows over this. Full-bore street riots were breaking out. The emperor, Constantine, is threatening martial law. Okay? At this point, it gets so bad, it looks like the entire empire is going to split in two. So you know what Constantine, the big-headed guy, does? He does something that has never before happened. He calls every bishop from the entire Roman Empire, every single one, and says, we've got to come to a resolution. I want you to come to this place called Nicaea. Which I think. Nicaea, just, just next to Constantinople there. I want you to come to Nicaea, and we're, we're going to come to some sort of decision. And that day, something happened that, and prior to this, remember, just 12 years earlier, it was, it was illegal to be a Christian. Just 22 years earlier, the government was officially killing people for being a Christian. And now in 325 AD, Constantine calls together 318 bishops from every part of the world to say we as one church must come to a decision on this. This is what we today call the first ecumenical council in which bishops from the whole world came together to weigh in on is Arius right? Now this is this is the picture. This is Constantine himself and all the bishops with him and they're held together by this one creed that they all agree on. And Nicaea, they came to Arius and they said, Arius, you're wrong. Read, read the rest of the Bible, friend. What does Isaiah call him? He calls Jesus mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He is God himself. Read Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. What does it say? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. That he is unchanging, eternal in his nature. Read John eight fifty eight. What does Jesus say? 
before Abraham was, I am. He claims the very name of God. Read Isaiah 6. You see the great throne room of God in which God is being worshipped and angels are flying around. And it's just crazy. And then read John 12. And John will say, that was Jesus that they saw there. Read Revelation 21. He's the Alpha, the Omega, our very God. No, the Son's begottenness tells us about his relationship with the Father. That to call Jesus the Son of God is actually, is, is not to reduce Jesus' divinity, but to actually confirm it. So let's be clear. Let's ask Arius a few questions. So if you have a dog, what kind of sons does a dog have? Anyone? Yeah. And if you have a sheep, what kind of son does a sheep have? Oh, this isn't tricky. If you have an octopus, what kind of baby does an octopus have? Aww. And if you have a God, what kind of son does a God have? God. Always. That sons and fathers share the same nature. And that's the point of the language. Not to reduce his divinity, but to exalt him. He is very God of very God. He shares the same essential nature, substance, being. He's eternal God. Totally majestic. Perfect. That's my Savior. And they came with the creed. We believe in one God. The Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before the worlds. He's eternal. He is God from God, light from light, very God from very God, begotten and not made. He's not a created being. He's not less than God. Of one being. They liked Alexander's phrase so much they slapped it in there. With the Father by whom all things were made. And this is it. The whole church has agreed. Boom, put their stamp on it. Arius is wrong. And that should be the end of it forever. Forever. We know that Jesus is divine. The, the apostles have always taught that. The scriptures are clear. All the bishops of the whole world agree. But you still hear that. Dang. Ang. Padi ukang. Ang. You just can't get it out of your head. You say it a few times and you're just sitting around. Ang. Padi ukang. And that's what happened. Ain Yukin kept just going and going. And in fact, it, this actually didn't decide the issue, but it got those guys, all those guys who were backing Arius, it got them all mad. Now we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna change this. We're going to turn this around. And they start going for the wealthy people, for the emperor, for all this. And soon they have, they have a majority of the Christian world saying, Ain, Padiatiukain. Soon they have the emperor himself. And this is where Athanasius steps up. Fifty years later, Jerome, the church father and scholar, would write, The whole world groaned and was amazed to find itself Arian. That the majority of churches had given up for political reasons, for comfort, for money. They'd given up the divinity of Christ. Alexander dies and Athanasius, our old boy. Yeah. How about that for lipstick? Um, he just won't have this. He will not have this. He, he's overseen like a quarter of the Christian world. And he says, not on my time. Not in my day. I don't care if the emperor and everyone else in the world turns against it. We are not denigrating my Christ, my Savior. 
And he goes on a campaign. He's writing and preaching and speaking against Arianism. And soon, those who are trying to repeal the Nicene Council, they realize, you know what? We've got the whole world behind us. I mean, the whole world. They had the emperor in their, in their back pocket. They had all these bishops who had changed their mind conveniently when they were offered land or money or threatened it all. They, they had the whole world. They, they just realized that there's just one man. One little man. He was literally little short man. Standing between them and turning Christianity into Arianism. So they thought, we'll take care of this. I know what we'll do. And next thing you know, from Rome, rumors start spreading. Rumor after rumor. You know that Athanasius guy, I heard that he's into witchcraft. You know what I heard? I heard that he murdered someone. You know what I heard? I heard that he murdered someone, chopped off his hand, and uses it for witchcraft. I mean, these ridiculous, horrible, fantastic accusations came and spread across the entire empire until they finally reached the palace, and, and the emperor said, we, we've, got to, we've got to deal with this. He's got to answer for all the wrong that he's done. So he calls this, this council and this trial and says, we're going to hold Athanasius accountable. And Athanasius, these are just completely trumped up charges. Like, what am I going to do? They're going to say I killed someone and they actually show up at the council and they've got this guy's hand and like what's going to happen? Well Athanasius shows up with a couple of his close friends the only people supporting him at that point and they hear a rumor. You know the guy that you supposedly killed, Arsenius? He's actually in hiding. He's actually in an inn in this very town. So the night before the trial, you know what they do? They go to that inn and they kidnap Arsenius. I can't make this stuff up. This is awesome. They kidnap him. And so they're at the trial. Everyone's gathered around. People are literally booing, jeering, throwing things at Athanasius. How dare you? You're evil. You've, you've killed this man. And they, they're waving around this, this hand that they have. And they say, look at what he's done. What do you have to say for yourself? And Athanasius steps up calmly. Says, did you personally know Arsenius? And a bunch of them said, yes, I did. I have seen him. I've spent time with him. I know him. And so they pull this man in the middle of the room, covered in a cloak. And then they pull back his hood, and everyone gasps. <gasps> Arsenius, he's alive. And then Athanasius comes up to him, pulls off one side, and they see his one hand. And they're like, <gasps> and then they're just waiting. He's going to pull back the other side, and they're going to see this mangled stub. He pulls back the other side, and he's got his other hand. To which Athanasius then said, perhaps Arsenius was born with three hands. And everyone laughs. He won the day, but he didn't win. Just a couple months later, the emperor wouldn't put up with it anymore. Had him exiled to Gaul, southern France. And for five years, Athanasius is off the scene. He's all the way in Gaul in southern France. And he has to wait until the emperor actually dies. And then the next emperor arises. And Athanasius, as soon as the emperor dies, he comes back to Alexandria. And what does he do? He starts writing. He starts fighting for the, for, for the truth. Jesus is fully God. And he starts writing and publicizing and speaking against it. And these Arians, they hate it. They say, we can't put up with this anymore. So what do they do? Well, emperor number two, Constantine's son, he actually sends down troops and, and, um, and, and tries to get them. And this time, Athanasius actually, the whole city's locked down to capture him. He actually has to be smuggled out of a boat. This time he goes straight to Rome, though. And in Rome, he actually meets with bishops and meets with all these guys from the West. And he starts working. And, and even when he's not at home, he's working to fight against Arianism. Well, he has to wait until Constantinus, Constantine's son, dies. The next emperor rises and he's like, I can go home again. 
He goes home, has a few good years, and then what happens next? He's leading worship one day. In the middle of the worship service, he gets word. Our entire church is surrounded by soldiers. They've come to take you. So he asks everyone to stand. He stands right in the middle of the crowd, and he starts leading them in Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And all the people say, his love endures forever. And then he starts marching them out the doors. Give thanks to the God of God. And, he, and everyone thinks he's marching his people out and he's going to die a martyr's death now. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. And all the people march out and the soldiers descend upon the crowd. But when they get to the middle, Athanasius is nowhere to be found. At this moment, no one knows what happens to Athanasius. He, he becomes a ghost. Some people say he's dead. Some people say he's living in the slums among the poor. Some people say he's hiding in the wilderness. No one really knows. And years pass. Years pass. And this is the height of Arianism when the whole world, the majority of the world, is now saying that Jesus is not fully God. When from the top down, the the emperor himself is now worshiping Jesus and not worshiping Jesus, but saying that Jesus is just the son of God. He's a demigod. Finally, the emperor dies. Athanasius, now quite aged, emerges from the desert. And we find that this whole time, he'd actually been living among these hermits, these ascetics. We would call them desert fathers or monks. He'd been living in caves with them. And so he comes out and he's going to start really the richest time of his ministry. And in this time, while he was there, he actually met a guy. I just want to introduce this guy to you too. He met a guy named Anthony. Now, Anthony was one of these guys that would probably scare you if you met him on the street, right? Old, dirty, kind of crazy look in his eye. When he was young, his parents died and left him a huge fortune. They believed that he was illiterate, but when he heard the words of Jesus, go sell everything you have and come follow me, he thought, that's for me. That's exactly what he did. And when he saw that the whole world, the whole world called itself Christian, but, but yet no one was acting like a Christian, he did what the only sane person could do and completely run away from it. And he lived in the desert for years. Athanasius met him. He ended up leading this monastic movement in the desert. Athanasius came back, jotted down a short book, a biography of Anthony when he got back. That book became the most popular book for almost a thousand years. Tens of thousands of Christians, comfortable Christians, for a thousand years would pick up that book, The Life of Anthony, and they would read it. And they would, they would read how he got up and gave everything away and left everything for Jesus. And tens of thousands of people would read this book of Anthony by Athanasius. And they would follow him. And that started what we know as modern monasticism. Athanasius is now approaching 70 years old. 
the battles raging on. There's two more emperors and lots more stories about him barely getting away, running on the lamb, being chased down, being tortured, threatened, forced to lose everything. Horrible things happen to him. He's deserted, falsely accused, uh, maligned, publicly mocked, threatened by emperor, emperors, chased by soldiers, repeatedly lost his position, forced to live in exile for years and years. In some ways, this guy has what you would just write out as like the worst possible life. And yet he kept fighting. And that day, um, people didn't have surnames. Like, I'm Paul Anderson. They didn't have that. So what they would do is they would refer to people by their location, their title, or a feature. And so Constantine the Great. Um, my favorite, Gregory the Bearded. Um, Saul of Tarsus. You get the idea. Athanasius, do you know what they called him? They called him Athanasius Contra Mundum. Athanasius versus the world, that's who he is. He's the one man that for 50 years of his life drew a line in the sand and said, if the whole world gives up Jesus Christ as God, I will not. The only way this church will go that direction is literally, literally over my dead body. This past week, I was breaking out the old books and reading through these stories again. And it made me think, he went through five exiles. I don't know about you. Have you ever been falsely accused of anything? Have you ever been mocked or... Have you ever had rumors spread about you? Have you ever been hated? Imagine if the whole world is against you. Imagine if you lose everything again and again. And I read through these stories, and I really think, man, if I got exiled to southern France, I would have stayed. (laughs) Forget the rest of you. I know Jesus is God. I don't care about you. And it really makes me wonder, why did he keep coming back? He knew that the emperors were against him. He knew that the world was against him. He knew that he was hated. Why did he keep coming back? And I realized that Athanasius did not live for himself. But he lived for the glory of God and for the love of his people, period. And when you pour out your life for other people, that gives him a courage and a boldness that this world rarely sees. And I am humbled by. He would literally die before he would let Jesus be downgraded. Through this one man, this one courageous man, this one man who is fully devoted to God, God actually changed the course of the world, turned back the tides of Arianism. And when I read over his story and I look at his life, my question is this. Does our world need an Athanasius today? Who's going to stand against the tide? Who's not going to back down when people say that God's word is false? Who's going to have the courage to stand up for the truth when when it's not popular? When everyone on Facebook's going to mock you? Who's going to stand for the truth when it's not convenient? And when it's not comfortable. 
Who's going to give their lives, not for themselves, but for the glory of God and his people? Athanasius poured out his life and then he died. But just a few years later, an emperor arose, Emperor Theodosius. He called the second ever ecumenical council of the churches. He called bishops from all over the world to this building, the Church of Holy Peace. And there the bishops recited word for word the lines of Athanasius. There for once, Arianism was done with, finally condemned. Never again would you hear in the kingdom among the Christian churches, Ain Padiatiukein. So Athanasius died for what he believed and did not see it, but Athanasius' life was not in vain. May we learn something from this man. Father, I pray, Lord, that as we uh, go back and look at this great cloud of witnesses, these men and women who literally lost arms and eyes and hands and tongues for your kingdom, these, these men and women who were exiled and literally died for the truth, Lord. I pray that when we read the scriptures, when we recite the creeds, when we talk about what it means that Jesus is fully God and fully man, Lord, that we will, we will know that this was purchased by the blood of martyrs. God, that we won't take our freedom lightly, that we won't live as a bunch of comfortable Christians, but we'll have the courage to stand and fight when you call us to. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.